perhaps one of the most pressing issues uh, of our day, and especially today, actually. Uh, today, it may, to some extent, be decided uh, this afternoon, one of the really difficult questions that has been asked again and again um, in the last 15 years is the question, who is the greatest quarterback of this generation? The, the, the two contenders at this point appear to be, uh, on the one hand, New England Patriots' Tom Brady, and on the other hand, the uh, now Denver Broncos' Peyton Manning. What? Who, who called that what? Who, 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 who do you want? Who, who are you voting for? Peyton, of course, yes. All right, very good. I guess we could, be de- we could be democratic here and take a vote, but that's not my style. I'm a little more authoritarian, so I'm going to tell you who the uh, greatest quarterback of the generation is. Uh, it's an interesting question. I, I, you know, I like to watch these. Um, I, I don't really like, I, I don't have the patience for an actual football game, but I do like uh, sort of the, the, the analysis and the storylines and the stats and so I, I enjoy watching these shows where the two guys get up there and they fight about who's the best quarterback of our generation. Is it Peyton or is it Tom? And I just love to listen to them. And what I, I find so interesting is that over and over and over again, they, they come up with, with two criteria for who makes the greatest quarterback, right? And the first cri- criteria is the stats, okay? Now, now like Pat said, in, in this category, there's no question that Peyton Manning has done incredible things. If you don't follow football, what we're in the midst of watching this season and last season is somebody breaking records that nobody thought could ever be broken. Uh, number of touchdowns in a season, yards passed, um, overall number of touchdowns. Peyton Manning is just dominating. He's just throwing the ball, his receivers are catching it, and he is racking up stats that will probably stand for a very long time after he retires. And so a lot of people say, you look at that and you say, man, you just can't beat it. This guy is the greatest quarterback of his generation. And then the uh, other man looks at him, you know, from across the, the studio and says, you fool. You foolish, foolish fool. Obviously, the most important issue when deciding the greatest quarterback of a generation is the number of Super Bowl rings. Now here, poor Peyton sadly lags behind uh, terrific Tom Brady, who now has three rings and five appearances in the Super Bowl. So if you're the sort of person who says, no, Super Bowl rings are really the issue, then you have to go with Tom Brady. You may be asking, why are we talking about this? Well, granted, it is one of the most important um, issues of our day, but... but it, Right here, there's a point to it. And, and the point is this. Um, when you're deciding this, you have to think about what it is to be a quarterback, what it is to be great, and then you have to look at what contributes to that, and you have to decide what is the most important factor. What aspect of being a great quarterback is the most important? What is it? What's necessary to be a great quarterback? I want you to think about this for a second. What's necessary? Now, I want to submit to you I'm sorry, Pat. I want to submit to you that it would be very, very possible for a lone football player on the gridiron to rack up amazing stats, to serve himself, to be focused on number one, you know, play the Kobe Bryant card. Let's just become the guy all the time. And you could rack up stat after stat after stat after stat after stat. I think it's it's the case that you might never come home with a ring 
Whereas, if you're the kind of quarterback who comes home with a ring, you by definition have to be the kind of person who, what, distributes the ball, uh, submits to maybe a run offense, um, leans on your defense. You can't be the guy. You've got to be a part of a great team. And as the leader of that team, you have to be willing to make the sacrifices and the decisions that lead to great teams. So I want to suggest to you that greatest quarterback of the generation has two aspects, stats and rings. But I think rings are necessary. I think rings are essential. And without them, you cannot be the greatest. Now it pains me because I hate Tom Brady, uh, and I hate the New England Patriots, and insofar as, uh, actually I feel like I'm betraying myself in my own heart in saying this, but I do think that today, and it, you know, the careers aren't over yet, but today, if you had to ask me, I'd say, Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback of his generation. Why? Because Tom Brady has the essential part, the better part, the most important portion, the, the portion of being a greatest quarterback that without it, you can't get there. He's got what you need, the necessity, the baseline, the start. Without this, you can't get there. And I suggest to you that Peyton's got a lot of amazing things. But as of yet, he doesn't have the better part, the better portion, the necessity. Now in today's text, we're going to be looking at a place where Jesus asks a very similar question. Jesus is forced to ask a question, who is the greatest disciple? What is it that makes a great disciple? And, and throughout Luke, we're going to see that we, we've had two aspects to this idea of a great disciple. There's hearing or listening, and there's doing. And in this text today, Jesus is going to isolate which is the better part, the essential part, the, necess- the, the necessity, the necessary part, without which you could never achieve great discipleship. And so like the Peyton and Brady question, we're going to be looking at this story to find out what is the better part of discipleship? What is the most important part? The two aspects are listening and doing. And according to Jesus, listening is the better part. Please stand while we read the text. If you have uh, in your note sheets, follow it in your note sheets. I've made some adjustments uh, to the New King James to uh, make it smoother and to emphasize a few points. We're beginning in uh, verse 38. This is Luke 10, 38 to 42. While Jesus and his disciples were traveling, Jesus entered a village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his message. By contrast, Martha was preoccupied with the burdens of ministry. So Martha came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to prepare the table all by myself? Tell her to help. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and distracted by many things. In discipleship, there is only one necessity, and Mary has chosen the better part of it. It won't be taken from her. Please be seated. If you're following in Luke, and I tried to emphasize it when I was reading it, this should be really jarring. This should be a shocking text. We're we're reading along, we're reading along, and we see Martha doing probably the most important thing thus far in the gospel that a disciple does. And that is hospitality. You've been hearing Neil and I harangue about hospitality. How long have we been doing this series? 
16, 17 years now? In the 17th year of this series, we have made an incredible focus on the importance of hospitality. And here's Martha doing it. Just a couple of notes on this. I mean, just before this section, uh, Jesus is talking to his 70, 72 followers, and they go out, and he, he literally commands the judgment of God and possibly hell on anybody who won't welcome them into the, their homes, who reject hospita- hospitality. That is, the, that is it, it, it sends you, uh, it, it puts you eternal threat because you are not willing to welcome Jesus and his people. And on the other hand, he's promised flourishing, the peace of God, healing, liberty to anyone who welcomes him or his people. Hospitality means the peace of God is with you. And it's not just in that section. Let's go back a little further. Uh, we, Neil uh, preached on, on the, the Good Samaritan. Listen to the end of this passage uh, where the lawyer has, has said, who's my neighbor? Right? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. This guy is hurt, and then three people come by, and it's the Samaritan who cares for him. The next day, he, the Samaritan, took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him. When I return, I'll pay you back for additional costs. What do you think, lawyer? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? The legal expert, the lawyer, said, the one who demonstrated mercy. And what is mercy here? It's hospitality. He takes care. He welcomes the man in. He gives him a place to stay, a place to recover. Radical, costly hospitality is the definition of loving your neighbor. Before that, listen to this, an argument arose among the disciples about which of them was the greatest. Who's the greatest disciple? Aware of their deepest thoughts, Jesus took a little child and had the child stand beside him. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever is least among you is the greatest. If you step back and you take yourself out from the front and you get down and you do the the hard, dirty work of welcoming and caring for people, that is what makes you a great disciple. And then we read this text, and what is the first thing Martha does? She welcomes Jesus, the Lord. She takes care of him. She breaks her back doing things for him. How is it that Jesus can look at this woman who is anxious, she's scared, she's concerned, she's waiting on him hand and foot. How can he look at her and say, you're wrong? Listen to this last text from the Gospel of Luke. It comes from chapter 8, verses 19 to 21. Jesus' mother and brothers came to him but were unable to reach him because of the crowd. Someone told him, Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside. They want to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who listen to God's word and do it. You want to be one of Jesus' people. You want to be a disciple. You want to be a great disciple. You listen and you do. You have to have both to be a great disciple. There's no, there's no, you can't separate them out. If you want to be a great disciple, you listen to the message of God, and then you do it. 
And uh, what is listening? Uh, it, it, it's difficult because, you know, we live in a world where we hear a lot of things. Actually, the, the, the neuroscientists, they've actually uh, done fMRI scans on, the, on, on, on men as they're sitting watching uh, TV. And it's amazing. They can actually watch in the way the brain processes auditory signals. They can watch a man filter out anything he's not interested in. It's true. They can actually do this. They can watch. So, so an example, I'm sitting there. I'm uh, watching probably something very nerdy. And I'm, I'm, I'm watching it, and, and there's a lot of things going on. The dog barks. Don't hear it. Um, Daddy, more milk. Nope. Just whoosh, right through. Uh, honey, we, we, need more, we need more milk. Can you go to the store? Nothing, nothing, nothing. Uh, and then a car, a car crash outside. Whoa, I'm up. What, what? My, my, my hearing, um, my brain is set up so that it filters out all of the stuff that's unnecessary. <laughs> stuff that doesn't matter. And, and, it, and it picks up, it picks up on, uh, it picks out of the background noise, the white noise, only the things that are truly, truly important. And so clearly, it's very difficult for me to pay attention to the things that my wife and daughters, you know, are saying to me while I'm watching television or reading a book or whatever. So that's not hearing, right? It's not that, it's not that, and, and, and to be fair, if you ask me later, like if, if Aaron comes and she's like, did you hear me? I'd be like, yeah, I know, I gotta get milk, I got it. It's being, it's in there, it's not totally lost, but it's not heard, it's not listened to. Uh, Robert Heinlein has this book in the, I think it was the 70s, it's called Stranger in a Strange Land, and there's a lot of things that are awful about it, but he does have a Christ character, and the Christ character teaches uh, the meaning of uh, listening to people on earth. He's like from Mars or something, and he, uh, he teaches people the meaning of listening on earth. And he uses this word, it's called grok. G-R-O-K, grok. And he says, uh, it, we're not just talking about hearing sounds. We're not just talking about uh, listening. We're talking about groking. That means understanding, absorbing, receiving, internalizing what you've heard, focusing, attending, being present to. It comes in your ear and it becomes a part of you. That's what listening is. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, you're listening to God's word. It's not as though God's word is just background noise and you're like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. No, no. God's word is fully present. You attend to it completely. You understand it, receive it, absorb it. It becomes a part of you. The message of God doesn't, doesn't pass through. It's yours entirely. That's listening. And then what is doing? You listen to God's word and you do it. All doing is is getting that reception from God, understanding what God wants, and then responding to it. Notice that the doing can't occur without the listening. The doing doesn't work if there's no listening, because the doing is itself a response to the message. This is, I, I love in, in Luke, a couple of, we have a couple examples of some wacky, wacky listening and doing, right? At the very beginning, Levi. Levi is a tax collector, and Jesus says, leave everything you have and follow me. And, Jesus, and, and Le- Levi says, let's have a party. That, I mean, we should be a little bit, <laughs> okay. Very strange response. But that's exactly what he's heard the message of God. He said, God has given him a gracious, open-armed welcome. And Levi says, that's something to celebrate. Let's do that. It's a response. 
He's not, he's not planning out all the things that he thinks should go on during the week, and then Jesus comes up and he executes. No, he hears and, resp- and, 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 and listens and grocks God me- God's message, and he responds, and that response is, it's, it's natural, it's creative, it's strange, it's a little weird. Or think about the, the, the prostitute in, in Luke 6, who uh, Jesus forgives her sins, and her response is, I'm going to cry on your feet and bathe them in perfume. It's a strange response. Not probably what I would do if my sins were forgiven. Nevertheless, she's heard God's message, you are forgiven, and an action follows out of that. She responds viscerally with something that she knows. Hearing and doing are closely related. They're, they're, they're like sisters, right? Like Mary and Martha. You got Mary, who's a listener. You got Martha, who's a doer. This story gets, gives Jesus a chance to put discipleship on the horns. You've heard this, uh, this phrase, on the horns. It's where you take a concept, and you take an argument, an idea, and you set it, and you examine it, okay? And you parse it, and you decide, what does, what does this concept mean? What's essential to it? And this is an opportunity for Jesus to demonstrate in the Gospel of Luke to us which is the more important part of discipleship. There's two things. There's listening, there's doing. And listening is absolutely the better part. Now this is a, this shouldn't be a surprise. We've read the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 8. The Shema. The first word of the Shema is hear. Listen, Israel. The Lord is God. The Lord is one. If you, it might be a little strange for us to think about this, but the idea is behind the Shema is that Israel is confessing the nature of God, right? Yahweh is God. Israel lives in in a world where there's a lot of gods, and those gods have very different strange characters. There's some gods that are, you know, they beat you with a stick. Uh, There's some gods that are gone, they leave. There are some gods that are weak. And Israel's told, those aren't gods. Those aren't the God. Yahweh is God. And that matters because we know Yahweh's character. This is Israel's gospel to the world, if you will. Israel's good news to the world is that it's not, you know, Beelzebub or Marduk or any of the other, Baal, all these other gods that want, those aren't the God. Yahweh is the God. And that's good news because Yahweh's not like those other gods. Yahweh is characterized fundamentally by gracious, open-handed welcome. Yahweh is characterized fundamentally by commitment and love. No other God has that. And the, and the, the first confession of Israel is listen to that. Hear that. Absorb that. Grok that. And if you do, what you do afterwards will be right. It's interesting, if you uh, look in uh, 1 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul actually adopts the Shema. Um, he, he, there's a Christian version of the Shema, right? The Shema is uh, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is one, the Lord is one. 
And Paul adjusts it. He says, um, there is one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ. He's taking the Shema of Israel and he's putting Jesus in, in Jesus' proper place. And the reason he's doing that is he's saying, okay, we have the revelation of, of, of Israel. We have the law. We have all of the Old Testament. That's great. But we also have a new revelation. We have the face of God in Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Listen to him. And you will literally be before the face of God. You're going to understand the gracious forgiveness of this God. You're going to know the call to God's repentance. You're going to understand the kind of life and kingdom that comes with Jesus. And in order to do that, please, 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 hear, listen, shut your mouth. By listening at Jesus' feet, Mary knows God. And by doing before listening, Martha misses it. And look at Martha's problems. This is a very, it's a very telling set of things. There's a couple problems that Martha, Martha has. I want you to notice, I translate, if you're familiar with the passage, you, you might have noticed uh, that I've tra- uh, translated something like work or service to the word ministry. It's in verse 40. Uh, by contrast, Martha was preoccupied with the burdens of ministry. Uh, that word di- diaconia is Luke's standard word for talking about missions from God or ministry for God. It can, in ancient contexts, mean like table service, but Luke exclusively uses it to talk about Christian ministry. And I think that Luke is saying, Martha's doing Christian ministry, or at least trying to, but she's doing it wrong. And a lot of problems fall out of that. The first is that she's anxious. She's distracted. And by what? Uh, The burdens of ministry. I mean, of all the things to be anxious and burdened by. Do, do, we, do we notice, do we hear the echo of what uh, the parable of the sower, right? You know, the word comes and then it's choked out. Why? Because of the cares, the anxieties, the distractions of this life. Martha's heard the word of God and suddenly she's inundated by table service, her Christian ministry, her Christian ministry itself, her ministry to the Lord becomes the very thing that is the source of her anxiety, her distraction. She can no longer even listen to the Lord's message because her ministry, her service has gotten in the way. If Martha had listened, grokked, absorbed, received Jesus' message, she would have known that one of the biggest dangers for a disciple is getting anxious and distracted by the cares of life. I don't want to get too focused here, but yeah, throwing parties for people and welcoming them, that's stressful. That's a care of life. If it's something that's anxious and distracting to you, then don't do it if it costs you listening to the message of who God is in Christ. There's many things, and of course all of you can, can quickly identify the things in your life that are stressors, anxiety. And, and many of you can even pinpoint in your Christian service, your spiritual life, the things about what you are set to do for God that terrorize you. You know, one of the enemy's best traps for sidetracking your discipleship is filling up your life with cares and worries. 
C.S. Lewis, uh, if you've read the Screw Tape Letters, has this fantastic passage where um, the, char- the main character in the Screw Tape Letters is a Screw Tape. He's a he's a demon, and he's tasked with sidetracking this young Christian man. And it so happens that war breaks out, World War II, and the young man is uh, possibly going to be called up for military service. And the young man is terrified. He's, he's, in his mind, he's multiplying all the possibilities. You know, what if I, I go and I'm gone so I can't protect my family? Or, or I go and I get hurt. Or I'm not called, but my best friends are called. Or, and he's, he's multiplying all these anxieties, all these distractions in his head. And Screwtape, the demon, uh, the demon uh, Screwtape is being like, this is great. Good job. And, and, and he says, keep, keep focusing on multiplying those anxieties. And don't, don't notice for a second that they can't all come true, right? That's how we are when we're anxious. We begin multiplying these things, but we, can, we never stop to think, wow, it's not even possible for all the things we're worried about to happen. And yet, because we're focused on all of these things outside, these, these cares, we, we get lost and we, we don't have any peace. We can't look at the God who is gracious and welcoming and respond to him. The first problem that, that Martha has is anxiety and distraction. The second one is uh, it's the, the, the Marsha, Marsha, Marsha problem. I've never actually seen any uh, Brady Bunch TV shows, movies, or anything. Um, I think I saw once the, uh, the intro where there's like, it's like people, their heads are looking down at each other in like a big grid. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Because I think this was famous. We'll put it this way. It's famous enough that I've heard of this uh, line where I think the youngest sister goes, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. It's always about Marsha. Apparently Marsha's the oldest sister, and uh, she makes everything about her, right? And that's a problem. And many of you and your families, you'll have people like Marsha or like me who make it all about them. You know, right here, my problems first. It, it's so funny. In the Greek, um, when, uh, when, when Jesus is, is, or when Luke's uh, recording what, what Martha says, there's a, a little bit of alliteration. You can almost hear it in English. She says, mu monen me, which is three words that are about me. Of me, by myself, me. Mu monen me. Me, me, me. That's what, Mar- that's what Martha says. Uh, it's, it, it gets smoothed out in English, but it's, um, it's that verse where she's like, don't you care that my sister has left me to prepare the table all by myself? It's amazing. Luke puts the left me, myself, um, and my all right next to each other. It's like my, myself, me. He's really pulling this out. You know who Martha's thinking about? Me! I mean, you can imagine. I mean, look, look we, we, can all, we can all relate here. Um, I'm terrible at entertaining because I get a lot of social anxiety because I want everything to be perfect. So I do relate to Martha here. Um, I'm sitting there and, okay, I'm cooking and I got to get that right. Oh gosh, I don't want to overcook that. <laughs> Is everyone okay? Is, who's talking? Are we talking? Having a good conversation? Don't, not a second of silence. No silence because that's awkward and uncomfortable. Can't have that. I got to do this, got to do that. And really what I'm doing what I'm doing is I'm making that party about me being happy. It looks like I'm about other people being happy, but I'm really about me being comfortable. Moreover, what's Martha's ultimate goal here? 
in putting on a good party. <laughs> Boy, it's, I don't, honestly, I don't even want to invite Jesus in because Martha already did it best. I mean, she is the best at hospitality. Uh, her, her cooking, um, the accommodations. I, honestly, I don't even think Jesus could possibly even want uh, to stay anywhere else because Martha has, she set the standard, the bar. I mean, we all have to live up to Martha's excellent uh, accommodations and hospitality. The rest of us don't even have a chance. Boy, Martha sure is great, isn't she? That's her goal. And so when the burdens of that ministry begin giving her anxiety, she's stressing out and she jumps all over her sister. Mary, give me a hand here or otherwise I'm not going to look the way I ought to look. This is her Christian ministry, friends. And that's how she's approaching it. <laughs> Thank goodness we would never do the same thing. That is awesome. I'm, I'm yes, nothing to worry about there, uh, which is good. Which is good because it does seem like it could be a really big problem. If Martha had heard, listened, received, absorbed Jesus' message, she would have recognized that service for the kingdom of God is not self-aggrandizing. You know, we learn earlier in Luke that yes, wealthy patronesses, wealthy women in the area, and it does seem like Martha is probably wealthy. She's able, she has a home, she's able to provide, so she's probably you know up on the, the social. Uh, Ladder. They help out Jesus and, and his, his friends with their resources. But the reason they do, do so in Luke 8.1 is to help with the preaching and proclaiming of the good news of God's kingdom. Not so that they look awesome. The point is not to be known as a good host replete with resources. The point is to get the message out. To get Jesus' word heard. So Martha's doubly in the wrong. Not only is she not listening, she's not listening because she's trying to be important and respected. She's not able to listen because she's got a different priority. And I think Luke uses that word ministry to kind of slap us a little bit and say, friends, your Christian ministry it is very possible, likely even, that it can become a source of anxiety. It can become the grounds of self-promotion. That's not what Christian ministry is about. And the question is, how do we avoid it? How do we make sure that our ministry is not about that? Well, before we jump there, I, I want to make one more suggestion. And this is about Mary. It's easy to think that Jesus is glorifying Mary. I don't think that's the case. I think that Jesus is looking at two people who uh, have the potential to be great disciples but aren't there at all, and each of them has one of the you know, aspects of being a good disciple, listening and doing. They're both important. And Jesus is looking at Mary and saying, if you have to choose, start there. I don't think Mary's awesome. I don't think a lot of you know, ancient... Uh, readers of this text think that what we uh, should do is give up all of the uh, responsibilities of life and meditate at the foot of Jesus. Um, I suggest that if you do that, you will starve. Um, and I don't think that's uh, the point of this message. It is, however, to say, if you're going to get 
to the great discipleship level, this is where you start. So yeah, neither, neither Marriott nor Martha is at the Peyton Brady level yet. They have a long ways to go. They're at the beginning of their careers. They have much to learn, but they can tell us what is essential, and that is listening. Um, why? Why is listening essential? Why is it the necessity? Why does it come first before doing? There's a, another awesome study that neuroscientists have done, and you'll immediately uh, recognize it, where you take a person and you sit them in a very quiet room, and you let them remain in a quiet room for um, a long time, you know, 30 minutes plus, right? No noise, no distraction. And then you make a very large, uh, very large or loud, uh, I'm sorry, phone ring. And then you watch what they do. Now you've been in a situation like this, you jump up, right? Immediately uh, your fingers are tingling. That's because adrenaline is now coursing through your body. Um, your heart has elevated. Your uh, BPMs are up through the roof. Um, your entire body is prepared to basically take out a gun and shoot somebody. That's where you're at. You're at the, you're alert, okay? And then a second later, you're like, oh, that was a phone ring. And then everything stops. That is, ex- that is an example of how our body is naturally designed to do first and listen later. It is, it is built into us to be doers first, listeners later. But listening is what makes our doing proper to the task at hand. When, when the phone rings, the goal is not to jump up and crash out of the window and run around crazy. No, the point is to calmly stand up and pick up the phone and say hello. But in order to do that, you have to listen. And by listen, again, we mean receive, absorb, understand, comprehend, and then do. Here's the problem spiritually. Just like physically, we are, it is utterly counterintuitive for us to know Yahweh God as a gracious, freely giving, freely forgiving God. Our spiritual selves are designed, they are built to resist that. We, because of sin, we can't believe that God is really like that. We can't believe that God just lavishes it on us. We can't believe that God after we've slapped him in the face time and time and time again, will just forgive us. Because we know nothing like that in our lives. Our lives are utterly filled with tit for tat, do, 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 earn, earn, earn. That's the economy we live in. That's the economy that every human being has ever lived in. That is not God's economy. And we can't believe it. None of us can believe it at the core of ourselves that God is that loving that gracious, that giving, that open-handed, that welcoming. It's impossible. How can that be? It can only be if we listen to who Jesus is, listen to his word, watch what he does, and remind ourselves over and over and over again that he didn't ask for a thing. He gave it all. Gave. Free. Only when we see that over and over and over again does it sink in. 
And does our doing operate out of that and not out of, I got to get it done because I got to look good. I need to accomplish this. I got to exit. I'm anxious. I'm distracted. Only when it comes from that place where we know who God is and what God has done for us, can we act likewise. Listening comes first because it's the only way we can remember and absorb and internalize from whence our ministry proceeds. I have a friend uh, from seminary. His name is Phil. And uh, you can look him up on the internet. I mean, if you've got your Google machine right now, you can just uh, put in Phil space Sipka, S-I-P-K-A, um, Really nice kid. Uh, but he was always, you know, he was always troubled um, primarily by uh, race relations. Uh, Phil had, um, it, was, he was, it was on his heart, he was burdened um, by the idea that, you know, this country has such a, a terrible track record of uh, reconciliation between the races um, at different ethnicities. And so Phil uh, began attending a church. Um, that was, except for him, 100% African-American. Very small congregation, 25 people, 25 African-Americans and Phil every Sunday. And every Sunday after um, uh, church, the, uh, the people would invite Phil, who's single, young, uh, to come to, to uh, lunch with them. And they fed him uh, large portions of good food. And they got to know him, and they loved him, and they received him. And he told me once, he said, you know, I hope this church never grows. He said, if, if, if it did, and people started talking about building a bigger building, I'd say, no, go somewhere else. Because what I've experienced here is exactly what I've experienced in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Free, gracious acceptance. And after seminary, Phil moved to Chicago, and he started the Kasunya Cafe. It's in uh, the middle of Inglewood, Chicago. It's a very violent uh, urban area. And to this day, he is a barista and a manager of this coffee shop. And the coffee shop uh, is designed to bring in um, blacks, whites, Latinos, Asians together and to sit them down uh, around a table drinking coffee. That's a weird response. That is not how I would respond. But it came out of a recognition and absorbing of what it is to have that gracious, open-handed forgiveness from God. Phil internalized that, and then he went out and responded to it. Or Mike and Carrie, who go down to Haiti, and they look, wow, we have so much. We've been given so much. What an incredible, open-handed, gracious God we have. Let's just start a boy's home and spend 80% of our money funding it and getting churches involved and never sleeping ever again and being totally stressed. Mike, I feel like there's parts of this message that you should probably pay attention to, just FYI. Nevertheless, the the idea uh, that God gives freely, graciously, without strings attached, and Mike and Carrie respond to that and give freely, graciously, without strings attached. Why? Phil and Mike and Carrie, they listened first and then they did. Let's pray. Father, we trust um, that you really are a father.
that Jesus Christ really is your face. That that gracious forgiveness of sin, that free, utterly free call to your life, to eternal life, is just that. It's free. God, I pray that we'll meditate, that we'll listen to that message. Let it penetrate and be absorbed and received in our hearts. And God, I pray that you'll stir up your Holy Spirit in us so that our responses will be creative and wild and they will reflect that gracious, open-handed love that you've put on us. God, we are blessed to be your children. We pray that we will be the Marys who listen at your feet and then we'll be the Marthas that respond in ministry. God, you're good. Your gifts are good, and we are your people. In your son's name we pray, amen.